Book of Joel, chapter 1. Back in the spring of 1960, Sam Cooke's Wonderful World hit the pop charts in America. But the song Wonderful World is actually best known for the first line of the song. Don't know much about history. So you, you start moving immediately. Happy, I sing the line and you're already in the groove. Yeah. All right. it's, it's playful, it's fun, it's great for a song, it is foolish for a lifestyle. To not know much about history. A large part of the reason why we have the problems in the world that we have is because we don't know much about history. The Lord spoke through Moses to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, and He said, Give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen. And they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. And the question is, will history teach us nothing? Or will we pay attention in class and learn from where we've been. The book of Joel begins, chapter 1, verse 1. Let's start there. I know we covered some of this on Sunday. But Joel, chapter 1, verse 1, begins the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Petul. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons and their sons to, and your Bibles probably say to the next generation, but as we talked about on Sunday, it's literally let them tell their sons to the following many. Let this story be told. Let this history be understood. And sadly, some of the dispute about the book of Joel today is because the story stopped being told. That while we have the story in Scripture... That people didn't continue to tell about the story. What story? The locust invasion. The locust invasion that we believe was the backdrop of the prophecy of Joel. What the gnawing locust, verse 4, has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. And again, Sunday we talked about it. Verse 4 is a picture of the life cycle of a locust that they fly in and immediately the females start laying eggs by the hundreds of thousands of eggs. And those eggs then hatch. And those hatched larvae begin to creep. And they begin to gnaw and eat. And they will eat their way through three, I think two or three different uh, stages before they gain wings themselves. And then they're in the air and joining the swarm. If you take the Bible literally as I do, you know what was going on when Joel wrote this. You know what the this was back in verse 2. Has anything like this happened in our days? It was a horrific locust swarm. And he says in verse 5, Awake drunkards and weep, and wail all you wine drinkers on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. And some say, well, the nation, it must be Assyria. It must be Babylon. No, it must be locusts. Again, just taking it at face value and looking at when we believe that Joel probably wrote this, it was back in around 835 to 840 B.C. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. The Lord says, that's Israel. His vine, His fig tree. It has stripped them bare, cast them away. Their branches have become white. 
wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined. The land mourns. The grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up. The fig tree fails. The pomegranate and the palm and the apple tree and all the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth. And lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. It's a bad situation. The prophet comes out and begins to declare, have we ever seen anything like this? The land completely raised by an invasion of locusts. A nation, an army... As we shared Sunday, the Bible says, Proverbs 30, verse 27, the locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. And so rank after rank, wave after wave, the locusts came. The Lord is never haphazard when it comes to prophecy. It's never an afterthought. He's never throwing it together at the last moment. He's not shooting from the hip. The Lord knows what He's doing. And when the locust swarm came, He already knew what He was doing. He already knew why He sent it. And yes, I believe He sent it. That it would function as, it would serve as the backdrop of the prophecy that He had to bring to the people. But before He could even speak a word, He had to open their eyes. Before He could say what needed to be heard, He had to wake them up. And so the swarm came. And sometimes that will happen in our lives. Calamities, crises, problems, challenges will come and then the Lord will speak. Wake up first and then listen. This ancient infestation, you could call a portentous portrait of the desolation that would come in the day of the Lord. Now some say, well, why, why if it was 840, why 2800 years ago And the day of the Lord hasn't even come yet, at least as described in Scripture, that hasn't happened. Why would He give that prophecy way back then? Why would He bring the locust swarm back then? And some have said, well, perhaps things were getting so bad in Judah, so wicked, that the locust swarm itself and the front end of the day of the Lord prophecy was a warning. If you don't turn it around now, the day of the Lord which is near is going to come crashing in. And we know that Joash, the next king of Israel, who would follow Atalia, the wicked queen at that time, Joash, put onto the throne at the age of seven, would make some marvelous turns, and the next 40 years would be great in the land of Judah. There would be a revival of sorts. So perhaps the Lord was about to drop a heavy duty judgment on the land, but because of the repentance of the people, turned from that. But that doesn't change the fact that the locust swarm of those days is a picture of the devastation of something far greater, much bigger than what would simply happen to Judah. We'll see that as we read on. Why a locust swarm, by the way? Why that choice? Why not a tornado or a drought or any number of other calamitous events? Why did God send a locust swarm 
We're going to see that in just a minute. We'll answer why. First of all, I want you to see who the recipients are of this message, because there are five of them notated in chapter 1. Five different recipients. Back there in verse 5, awake drunkards and weep. So first you've got dull drunkards. Dull drunkards in verse 5. And the prophecy and the locust form together come as a bucket of ice water over the head. The Lord Himself shouting, Awake, drunkards! Wake up! Come out of your stupor! Picture a room full of people hung over with sunglasses on saying, Lord, could you say that a little softer? Could you maybe not be so loud? And the Lord is saying, Alarm time! Wake up! Snap out of it! Why do people drink? Hey, as long as we're here. Awake drunkards. Why? Just just think about it. Reason with me about it for just a moment. Why do people drink alcohol? Taste? If it's taste, it always takes time to adjust to it, so that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But, you know, maybe some drink for the taste. Social acceptance? Probably far more likely. Hey, we get together with friends. It's great to break out the wine. Do you drink to calm the nerves? I've had a stressful day, and it just helps me relax. Oh, okay, self-medicating. Why do people drink? Escape reality. reality. So you're right on it. Why would the Lord bring what He brought in terms of a locust swarm? Why would He do it? He cuts off the vine. The grapes are no more. Nobody's able to make any wine, and the drunkards have to stop being drunk long enough to listen. Long enough to get away from, to stop escaping reality and face reality. And I think maybe the Lord has a word for us tonight about that. Proverbs 31, verse 6, says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. So let me ask you, are you saved or are you perishing? Are you bitter or are you blessed? The whole point is that drink is used exactly to what you all said, is to numb reality. It's so that we don't have to feel all that sometimes we don't want to feel. I don't want to deal with this. I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm stressed. I don't want to go to bed stressed. So pour a glass of wine and ease into the evening. And what we do when we do that, and I really don't mean judgment by this, but it's just the truth, what we do is we numb ourselves to a degree. Heavier drinking, heavier numbing. Lighter drinking, just a little bit of numbing. Hosea chapter 4, verse 11, you may recall this, says, Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. Now, now just, just apply that single verse. Wine and new wine take away understanding. Now, let, let me ask you all a question. How many of you would like to have understanding as to how to live your lives? Anyone not want understanding? Well, I kind of just want to be a moron. (laughs) I don't want to know what's going on. I don't want to have a clue. I've shared this with you before. Every glass of wine destroys 10,000 dendrites in your brain. A single glass of wine. Now, some might say, yeah, but Rick, I heard that we have millions of dendrites. You know what? I need all the dendrites I can get. (laughs) New wine, wine takes away understanding. 
pleasure dulls pain. That's why, that's why so often pleasure is bound up in sin. And I'm not saying pleasure in and of itself is a bad thing. There are all kinds of different ways that the Lord has blessed us to enjoy this world, to enjoy His creation, to take pleasure in things. But pleasure does dull pain, and no one likes pain. Brothers and sisters, what we see God do with Judah here, I, I hope we can get this. It's far better to feel the locust bite of hardship than to end up with a dull, or worse, with a seared conscience. Better to feel the pain and recognize what God is alarming us to or against than to numb ourselves and not really feel it at all. It's a wake-up call to those who are numb to the severity of sin in the world. And in Judah in that day, it was severe. And in America in our day, it is severe. The locusts took the vines. No vine, no wine. No wine, no dulling the senses. And God is awakening the drunkards from their doldrums. By the way, Jesus did too. Jesus came along. Matthew eleven nineteen. And said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, he says, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. They called him a drunkard not because he was a stumbling drunk, but because he was around people who were. Why was Jesus around people who were? So that they could continue drinking and remain numb to the reality? No, so that he could bring salvation into their lives. And by the way, when Jesus brings salvation, he doesn't leave you there. Hey, you're saved. Here's a six-pack. Have a nice evening. He brings salvation, and then He says, Come on, let's walk pure. I'll tell you what, instead of being drunk on wine, let's be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me give you something that will enliven you, and enrich you, and give you discernment, and open your eyes, and bring you comfort and peace. Everything that wine can't do, the Spirit can. Then and now, Jesus prevails upon the sinner to wake up. He does not leave the drunkards drunk. And by the way, the wake-up call of Joel is a wake-up call. Same call was given to the church. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, Awake, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So, dull drunkards, first group that God is talking directly to. First group that He calls out. Second group, bereaved brides. Bereaved brides. Look at verse 8. Wail like a virgin, guarded in sackcloth, or with sackcloth. Sackcloth was worn in times of weeping for the bridegroom of her youth. Bereaved brides. By the way, in the locust plague of 1915 in the land of Israel, we talked about Sunday, 40,000 people died. I didn't mention that tidbit. 40,000 people were killed when that plague hit the land. How many, I wonder, were killed when the plague hit the land in the days of Joel? And so he says here, wail like a virgin girded with with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Wail like bereaved brides, or we might say virgin widows. What's a virgin widow? It's someone who lost their love between the ceremony and the consummation. That in that short span of time, walking from the church to the bridal chamber, the groom is lost. Wail like that. 
How many of us will say yes in the ceremony, but no to the consummation? How many will be in this place, wailing like a virgin in sackcloth, because we never consummate the relationship with Christ? You see, it's real easy to pray the prayer. It's real easy to get dunked in the water. It's real easy to do the church thing. It's real easy to go through the ritual and say, good, done, right, finished. As I've shared with you before, the husband who said to his wife, I told you I loved you 40 years ago when we got married, and if it changes, I'll let you know. Okay, That's not consummating the relationship. That's staying back somewhere in the ceremony. Jesus did not call us to a ceremony. He didn't call us to ritual. He called us to a walking, living, breathing, loving, passionate, real relationship. And if we never enter into that relationship, if we don't know Jesus in that way, I was just having a conversation with my daughter last night, one of my younger daughters, about this very thing. A relationship with Jesus that is actual and real. Getting to know Him. Well, how do you get to know someone? You talk to them. You listen to them. You consider the things that matter to them. You spend time alone with them. You share them with other people. Relationship with God is no different than how we develop and build relationships here, only He's God. And that's what He calls us to. To lose the groom between the ceremony and the consummation. Jesus said in Matthew 7.22, Many will say to Me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? Did we not in Your name cast out demons and in Your name perform many miracles? Didn't we do the ceremony? And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew You. I never knew you. So we don't preach ceremony or ritual. We preach Christ crucified. Proof of a God who loves us wonderfully. Third group of people. Third group, pining priests. Pining priests, or you could say morning ministers. Either one works. Verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn and the ministers of the Lord. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 17 where we see them again. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance a reproach in these two places. Pining priests. So he's called out the dull drunkards. He's called out the bereaved brides. Now he's talking to the pining priests. And by the way, verse 9 is the first of six specific references. I said three on Sunday. I found three more. Six specific references to the temple in the book of Joel. So we can know from that that the temple was standing when Joel wrote his prophecy. It can't be at a time when the temple wasn't there. And so he wrote this, verse 9, from the house of the Lord, the drink, uh, grain offering and drink offering are, are cut off. Verse 13, he mentions the house of our God. You can just jot these down. Verse 14, he mentions the house of the Lord. Verse 16, he mentions the house of our God. In chapter 2, again in verse 17, he mentions that they are weeping between the porch and the altar. Well, that's in the temple. So yet another reference to the temple. And finally, chapter 3, verse 18, he mentions that the spring will go out from the house of the Lord. Now that's future, that's prophetic. But all the other references, the previous five, are all to the temple standing in the day of Joel. It's important to note that. The priests are pining. And the ministers are in mourning. Why? Because worship is cut off from the house of the Lord. 
There's no joy of worship there. You see, there's no grain, so you can't bring the grain offering. There's no fruit of the vine, so you can't bring a drink offering. The animals are failing because the land is so devastated. And so bringing sacrifice, the whole thing is completely messed up. And so the priests pine, and it hit me, without the offering of worship, we can't know joy. A church that doesn't know how to worship doesn't know joy. However, we worship, by the way, and there are many ways that we worship. Some of us love the hymns. I was raised on the hymns. Praise the Lord. Some love contemporary worship. Some love praise choruses. However, we worship. The worship of the Lord is critical to joy in our lives. Because without worshiping God, we don't know true joy. Well, I see people out on Friday and Saturday night all the time and seem to be happy. Let's go back to the dull drunkards. It's not true joy. Real joy, deep, deep joy. It comes from the worship of God. When worship is cut off, joy fails. And so the priests are pining and the, and the ministers are mourning. Interesting, no grain and no drink offerings, which means no bread and no wine, which are representative of the blood and the body of Christ. The bread, the wine. The body and the blood of Christ, gang, will never be cut off from those who believe. The grain offering and the drink offering that God poured out through Jesus Christ will not be cut off from you. Will not be removed from you. Such that Jeremiah 33 verse 11 says, The voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. For His loving kindness is everlasting. And of those who bring a thank offering into the house of the Lord, I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first, says the Lord. But we're not there yet. There's a fourth group of recipients. Forlorn farmers. Forlorn farmers. Verse 11. Chapter 1. Be ashamed, O farmers. The farmers are ashamed. That word ashamed is is interesting. It has more to do with desolation or despondency. As the farmers look out over their fields, these are fields that the farmers had planted, had cultivated, had watered, had cared for, and in one locust minute, gone. And so the farmers look out over the fields and are despondent. Their entire livelihood, gone. By the way, do you look at the field as your livelihood? Like a farmer does? Here's here's a way to think about evangelism. Because Jesus looked at the field as His livelihood. He said to the apostles in John 4.35, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white for harvest. That was Jesus' livelihood. That was His sustenance. To see people saved. To look out on the field. He had just sent the woman at the well back to town to tell the town. Jesus knew the town was on their way out to get saved. And someone's saying, do you want a hamburger, Lord? And he's like, I'm full, man. Because my sustenance is the field. My sustenance is the harvest. I look out on the harvest and it fills me up. And I want that attitude. I want that heart. 
Jesus said, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. The farmers here are forlorn. May we never be forlorn. May we always look out on the fields with joy at the harvest that the Lord is bringing through our lives. So, forlorn farmers and number five, vain vine dressers. Vain vine dressers, like the farmers, verse 11 mentions them, wail, O vine dressers, like the farmers, all of their work is now vanity. All of their labor, all of the planting and cultivating and, and the clippings of the vine and making sure the vine was well watered and taking care of it over, instantaneously, all the cultivation, all the careful pruning, done. Remember those locust larvae can move from 400 to 600 feet a day just eating their way through everything. And so the vine dressers, all of their work is vanity. All of their work is a waste. Jesus said, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. John 15, verse 8, he says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. If you don't want your vine dressing to be in vain, you've got to work by connection to Jesus. You've got to have His power in you, His work going on. Now, each group here, from the dull drunkards to the bereaved brides, what was number three? I don't remember. That's right. The pining priests, the forlorn farmers, the vain vine dressers, whatever ever you want to call them. These five groups, all of them are called to weep and wail and mourn and lament and cry. And by the way, every word attached to them is different in this passage. There are five different Hebrew words applied here. Drunkards who weep, the word is baka, and it means to bitterly shed tears as of someone who is finally waking up to the reality of life. The virgins wail. The the word is Allah and it's the word for lament, for lamentation. It's a deep wailing. And you could imagine a bride on her wedding day losing her husband and how it would bring a wailing in her. The priests mourn. That word is abal and it means to grieve. I think of Moses and the elders of Israel sitting by the tabernacle there when the people of Israel were chasing after the daughters of Moab and it was an absolute mess. Sexual sin was rampant. It was a horrible situation and and we're told in the Scriptures that Moses and the elders wept. And so the priests mourn. Abal, they grieve. Farmers, feeling shame. The word is bush and it means disappointed or despondent again. So we have bitterly shedding tears, lamenting, grieving, despondent, and then the vine dressers wail. The word, the word for wail sounds like wailing. It's yalal. Yalal, which means to howl, literally. That's a lot of pain. In fact, you read through this and God is calling out all kinds of heavy, duty, intense pain. Why does He call for so much pain? Verse 14, continuing. Consecrate a fast, He says. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land, to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day! For the day of the Lord is near. We talked about that word near on Sunday. It means next to. It is the same word used to describe your neighbor. The day of the Lord is right there. 
on the verge, held back by His grace, and yet it is near. Not speaking of, of time, it's speaking of proximity. The day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Verse 16, Has not food been cut off from before your eyes, our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God? And I point out again that gladness and joy should be the substance of any church fellowship. A church fellowship that is lacking in gladness and joy does not know Jesus. A church fellowship that has trouble laughing together and rejoicing together is missing something of grace. But in this case, gladness and joy were cut off. 17, verse 17, the seeds shrivel under their clods. Speaking of that dried up, hardened ground. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down. The grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly. Why? Because there's nothing to eat. There's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. So apparently, and yes, I think literally, not only was there a locust swarm, a locust invasion, but following that, the land was so desolate that fire's breaking out. Things are burning. There's nothing green. Verse 20, even the beasts of the field pant for you. The water brooks are dried up. And fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Has the Lord no respect for the environment? Because again, as you'll see, God sent this locust swarm. God raised the land with these insects. His land. Like, Lord, Greenpeace would be going nuts right now. The ecosystem of Israel was absolutely destroyed by these locusts. And you've got to realize something about, about ecology and about the environment in Israel. It, it's, it's a very tender environment. You've got to have water, which means you've got to have rain. You've got to have the rains for there to be planting. If there's drought, it's a big deal. You've got to have the green plants to, to maintain, to continue all of the photosynthesis and, and everything that's going on in the environment. Take away the green plants, as the Turks did when they put a tree tax on the land, the Ottomans, and suddenly what did the owners of land start doing? They started cutting down trees. If i got to pay tax on the tree, I just won't have the tree. And the trees were cut out from the land, and the land became desolate and hot and dry, and the, land, the ground couldn't produce... And so it's all very interconnected. We don't, we don't think of this kind of thing here in Washington State where we got plenty of rain. we got lots of green. But in Israel, every aspect of the environment depends on the rest. So send a locust swarm, that's intense in and of itself. But then the land just starts to fall apart. It's dry, it's cracked, there are fires, there's no food anywhere. The waters have all dried up. And again, you look at this and go... God did that to His environment. Why? So that the people who mattered more would cry out to the Lord. You see, God will use the environment if need be to get the people's attention. Because people always matter more. God loves the world He created. Don't get me wrong. And it is a beautiful world and it should and does bring glory and honor to Him. But gang, though He loves the world, He loves people more. 
Because people are eternal. And you all know this world is going to go away. Creation in God's hands is as simple as Legos in the hand of a child. You know? And I've tried to explain this to my children over time. Hayden had a, it took many, many years for my, for my son Hayden to get this. He's just now getting it at the age of 17. But with Legos, <laughs> he doesn't play with Legos anymore. But he used to, we would build something, and he did not want to take it apart. And I'm like, well, son, if we don't take it apart, we're not building Legos anymore. Because we used it all on this project. So you need to take it apart so we can build something new. That's how easy it is for God. You know, building a new earth, he'll take care of that. He's going to do that. He's not concerned about the environment like so many people are. He's concerned about souls. He's concerned about people because people are eternal. And the world is not. You remember, what did Peter say about the day of God? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, On that day, the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. And that, my friends, is global warming. <laughs> that is a global warming that no one can stop. And so you got to you know, weigh the two. Would you rather be about the environment or about evangelism? Would you rather save the trees or save a person? Hugging trees that are going to melt away? Or holding out the word of life for salvation eternal for another human being? That's where God is concerned. That's why He could wipe out His land. Because it was for the sake of saving His people. I've got to get their attention. He wipes out the land and He calls them back to Him to cry out to Him. And he's going to recreate Isaiah 65:17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to, to mind. He's going to have a wonderful new heaven and new earth in the future. We don't have to worry about it. It's in his hands. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. 1968. An archaeologist by the name of Benjamin Mazar. Uh, Mazar is, if you are in Israel, it is the name in archaeology. His daughter, Elat Mazar, is currently working in the same area down on the southwest end of the Temple Mount. She has unearthed and discovered amazing things there in Jerusalem. But in 1968, Benjamin Mazar, her father, spearheaded a decade-long archaeological dig on the southern end of the Temple Mount. And there they found a Herodian stone. You can see it in Israel. It's cut at a 90 degree corner. It was the corner edge of the railing of the Temple Mount. And engraved in that stone in Hebrew says to the place of trumpeting. Because at all four corners of the Temple Mount, the priests would go out and they would blow the shofar. That ram's horn trumpet. They blew it from those four sections for two specific reasons we've talked about recently. To sound the alarm and to gather the assembly. Sound the alarm. If there's invasion, if there's danger, blow the shofar from the edge of the temple that all in the land might hear. Or, if a festival or a feast or a gathering was called for, if a king wanted the people to come together for a proclamation, they would blow the shofar from that same place of trumpeting. I find it so interesting that here in Joel, he says, blow a trumpet in Zion, because trumpeting sounded the alarm. Consistent with Joel's trumpet alarm, what happens 
at the midpoint of the tribulation, we head into seven trumpet judgments. The trumpet sounds seven different times. Revelation 8, 9, 10, and 11 describe the trumpet judgments of the Lord, beginning at the midpoint of the tribulation and going forward in the last three and a half years. Seven trumpets sounding the alarm. What also interests me is before that, though the trumpet is blown to sound the alarm, the trumpet is also blown to gather the people. What does Paul tell us is going to happen prior to that tribulation period? The rapture of the church. In which, well, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, might as well read it again, right? For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. And I never get tired of reading that. I love that passage. You guys have probably heard it a billion times. You're going to hear it a billion more, unless the Lord should blow the trumpet, in which case we won't have to. The trumpet will sound, and the saints will be gathered. As with the blowing of the shofar, the gathering of Israel, the saints will be gathered in the day of Christ, and soon after that trumpet sound begins the day of the Lord, where the trumpet now becomes an alarm. Verse 2, it's a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Now stop right there. We just jump from the past to the future. And verse 2 clarifies it for us. How we can know for certain that the prophecy of Joel and of the day of the Lord is not past tense, has not been fulfilled yet, will be fulfilled in the future. How can we know that? He says, there has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. It's never happened. It will never happen again. This is a singular, unparalleled event. The day of the Lord. And we read that and you can think, well, wait a minute. Okay, so there was the devastation of Assyria. That was awful. But then there was the devastation of Babylon. That was worse. Well, then there was the devastation of Rome. And that was bad. There was the Holocaust. And that was horrific. The prophet Daniel wrote of this same future event. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So we know that in this day of the Lord, this scenario, that it will be an event that that is unparalleled in history and an event in which Israel will be rescued. Israel was not rescued in Assyria. They were not rescued in Babylon. They were not rescued when Rome destroyed the city. And they were not rescued in the Holocaust, the six million who died. They will be rescued in the day of the Lord. Jesus Himself also pointed to a future devastation, wiping out all possible past devastations. He says, Matthew 24:21, There will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unparalleled, singular, day of devastation like the world has never, ever seen. He says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect... And mind you, the elect is Israel in that passage. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Joel, Daniel, and Jesus, all three, 
speak of a day of devastation. They speak of a rescue of the Jewish people. It's not A.D. 70. It can't be A.D. 70. It's not the Holocaust. It is something more devastating yet to come. Verse 3. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Who's the them? Keep reading. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a fire, a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Note the use of the word like again and again and again here. He's painting a picture. He's giving uh, synonyms. He's giving metaphorical pictures of, of, this, of this invasion force here that are like horses, like war horses, like the crackling of a flame, like mighty people. Verse 7, they run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers. They march in line. Nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark. And the stars lose their brightness. I don't know what invading army force in history has caused the sun and the moon to lose their brightness. Unless there were so many planes flying that they could blot out the sun. And maybe that's a hint there as to what we're talking about. Something that flies. The Lord utters His voice before, note this, His army. Surely His camp is very great. Strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Why did the Lord use an historical locust swarm as a picture of the devastation of wrath in the day of the Lord? John knows. Turn over to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. I want you to compare what I'm going to read here to what we just read in Joel chapter 2. And you tell me if you see a parallel. And if you don't, don't tell me. (laughs) Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, by the way, this is trumpet number five in what are called the trumpet judgments, those seven trumpets blown, beginning at the midpoint of the tribulation. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. Okay, hint, it's an angel. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened the bottomless pit. That word bottomless pit, the Greek word is abuso. We would call it the abyss. The abuso, the abyss. He opened the bottomless pit, verse 2, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree. So there's a little environmentalism there, you know. But only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. 
and they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months, which, by the way, is the average time of a locust swarm. To torment for five months, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. The fifth trumpet judgment. In the time of great tribulation, and there is now all of a sudden a massive locust invasion, but it is unlike any locust invasion in history. Read on, verse 7. The appearance of the locust was like, oh, look, horses. That's what Joel said, right? Have you ever seen a picture of a locust up close? A little horsey face, kind of? Well, these were like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. Now, if I ever saw a grasshopper with a man's face, I would freak. I think I saw one on the Outer Limits one time when I was a kid. Remember that old show? Little ant with a man's face. I mean, that's just weird. These have the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women. Their teeth were like the teeth of lions. Verse 9, they had breastplates like the breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings. And in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have a king over them. The angel of the abyss. The bottomless pit, the abuso. An angel whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek his name is Apollyon. Gang, it means destroyer. This is not Satan. This is a king of a demonic horde from the abuso who was with them in the abuso. He is their kind of ringmaster, their ruler. This is an angel of satanic proportions, a massive and dangerous dude whose name is Destroyer. Verse 12, the first woe is passed. Behold, two more woes are still coming after these things. This is why we let Scripture interpret Scripture. It's why the Old Testament becomes explained in the New Testament. And that's what John is doing here. He's giving more information so we can get what was happening. What Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2, John says is going to happen in that time of great tribulation in Revelation chapter 9. But there are two problems with connecting this to Joel. Just two. In Joel's invasion, it is clearly the Lord's army, right? He says it's the army of the Lord. This locust horde, this horrible invasion in the land. And here, John says, their king is Abaddon, Apollyon, destroyer, a demonic leader, a deeply wicked, and you could say abysmal, angel. Joel says it's the Lord's army. John says their leader is a demon. Gang, it is the Lord's army. Understand, it carries out His will and purpose, whether it knows it or not. The locusts didn't know... They're locusts. All they knew was destroy. And so when they destroyed in Joel's day, they did God's purpose. Did they know they were doing God's purpose? No, they were locusts. Same with these demons. They're going about destroying. Satan will try to destroy you in your life. Satan will try to take you down. He'll try to send demons to mess you up, to bring and cause hardship. Just because he likes to do that. Because the thief comes to kill and to steal and destroy. God will allow it because God's purposes are always greater. 
God's always got a bigger plan working out. Satan thinks he's getting away with murder, and God's like, no, i got a bigger deal going on here. You don't understand. But go ahead, because you're just playing into my hand. The army of the Lord was, is this demonic force. Remember Isaiah 45, verse 7, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So the fact that it's the Lord's army and it happens to be demonic is not a problem after all. The demonic army thinks they're destroying, the Lord is doing something else. Second problem, the Bible does say that locusts have no king. Right? Proverbs 30, 27. Locusts have no king. These locusts have a king. Well, these aren't just locusts. (laughs) They are a demonic force. They're like horses. By the way, interesting, the Italian word for horse is cavaletta. When you speak Italian, you really need to do it with an accent. Which is why in my house, we have spaghetti. And a manicotti, you know. (laughs) I think about the comedian Brian Regan who says, you know, we don't do that with other languages. We don't say, hey, come on, I'm Irish. Come over to my house and have Lucky Charms. They're magically delicious, you know. (laughs) Cavaletta means little horses. That's the Italian word for locust, little horse. And Joel chapter 2 verse 4 again calls them, says they are like horses, they have face like men, they have hair like women, teeth like a lion, tails like scorpions. And gang, Revelation chapter 9 is describing the most heinous, twisted, rebellious, fallen angels in the spirit realm. How do you know that? Well, the Bible tells us. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 said God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell the word hell there is not hell it's Tartarus it is the Greek word that is the equivalent again of the abuso the abyss they were cast into the into hell into Tartarus committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment that when these twisted angels fell what they did was so twisted so bad so evil God locked them up in a place reserved for judgment. And I will submit to you that judgment is not only their judgment, but it is the judgment of the world when they are set loose. When that bottomless pit is opened up and they come out in a horde. Jude says the same thing. Verse 6 of his single uh, chapter letter, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode... He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So I believe that that's exactly what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 9 and Joel chapter 2. This army of the Lord, this vast army that swarms on the land in the time of the great tribulation, Joel is describing and John is describing. And think about what would happen if the worst of the worst criminals in society were instantly sprung from prison in the millions, we just close down all the prisons and let everybody out. What would happen? You might get kind of a picture of, of these wicked spirits who are let out. So we see a parallel between John and Joel here. It's not plagiarism, it's prophecy. It's not copying, it's, it's confirmation. Now you can go back to Joel chapter 2, but listen. While this demonic horde seeks only destruction, the Lord's purpose is far greater. Nahum the prophet, chapter 1 verse 6, says, Who can stand before His indignation? 
Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by Him. But Nahum says in verse 7, the Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble and He knows those who take refuge in Him. He allows the destruction that those who are His might run to the stronghold, which is Him. Come to the stronghold. Ultimately, that is the purpose, the final great purpose of the tribulation. The tribulation is God's judgment on this world. But to anyone in that tribulation period, be it Jew or Gentile, anyone in the tribulation period who runs to the stronghold, who runs to the Lord, will be saved from it. The church will not be in it at all, not because we're so good, but because we have accepted the grace of God already in Jesus Christ. Trumpet of alarm to the heart of the Hebrew people, a final plea to the heart of humanity. That's what the tribulation is about, God pulling out all the stops one last time to try and offer eternal salvation to anyone who would come to the stronghold. Revelation 14, verse 6 says, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God! Give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. It's amazing. When you study the book of Revelation, what God does to save people even after the church has been raptured. He's still trying to save people. He sends two witnesses to prophesy out of Jerusalem. We know. Right, Dave? It's, it's got to be Moses and Elijah. He sends the two witnesses. He, he sends an angel flying in the mid-heaven. He's got 144,000 sealed Jewish evangelists going all over the world preaching the gospel. God is trying to save the world even in the midst of judgment. Now understand that about the Lord. It's marvelous. The amazing thing of biblical prophecy is that grace always emerges even in days of wrath. Even when God is calling out punishment, He is at the same time offering grace. If you will just come to the stronghold. And maybe on a more personal note tonight, you just need to come to the stronghold. Things are a mess around you and there's calamity and there's destruction. Come to the stronghold. The only one who can save you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Joel 2 verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning. He says, and note this, he's going to say a couple of different things here. He's going to say, number one, return to me. In your day of trouble, in your calamity, in the destruction, return to me. If it's confusing to you why God would want people to mourn or want people to weep or want people to fast, you know, Christians sometimes just say, well, I thought it was the joy of the Lord that's my strength. Why is He allowing this to go on in my life? David Guzik put this really well. He said, we don't repent with the idea that God is so mean that if I don't return to Him, He'll squash me. Instead, the idea is, God is so gracious and so merciful, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, that He will spare me from what I deserve if I will simply return to Him. Just return to Him. And He will spare. 
Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul said, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Or how about this, Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Why does God allow bad things to happen in the world that we might run to Him? that we might come to the stronghold. He says, return to me. He says in verse 13, and rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Rend your heart and not your garments. The Jewish people, when they got upset, would tear their robes. Remember the high priest did it, which was against the Torah law. The high priest tore his robe when Jesus declared Himself to be the Son of God. And God says, don't do that. Don't mess up a good shirt. That's not the point here. If you're going to rip something open, rip open your heart. Rend the heart. That's the second thing to note. God says, return to Me. And He says, rend the heart. Why? Because He wants you to feel it. He wants you to feel what's going on. It's not a business deal. It's not a, a buy-in to an eternal timeshare. Oh yes, Lord, I'd like a piece of that action. Rend the heart. It's real life. It's relationship. It is Gomer coming back to Hosea. Return to me, he says. Rend the heart. Well, that's all well and good, but who else had to rend their heart for the Lord? I mean, it's just me? Well, Abraham did. And Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and the judges, they all did and the kings did. David, of course, did. Most famously in Psalm 51, ripped his heart wide open before the Lord. Nehemiah does it in Nehemiah chapter 9. Ezra does it in Ezra chapter 9. Daniel does it in Daniel chapter 9. 999, those three passages are interesting to compare and study. Peter wept bitterly. Paul rent his heart. And if that's not enough for you, listen, Jesus did. Jesus rent His heart in Gethsemane. Jesus' heart was absolutely broken and torn open in the Garden of Gethsemane when He faced, not the fear of crucifixion, when He faced our sin. When He recognized in that moment He would have to wear our sin, He rent His heart before the Lord. God says, return to Me. Rend the heart. And He says at the end of that verse, I will relent. I will relent. Verse 14, Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. The question is rhetorical. Who knows? God knows. Because He just said, Return to Me, rend your heart, and I will relent. And the prophet says, Who knows whether He will not turn and relent. He just said He would. God will. And note that He leaves a grain offering and a drink offering. Again, a picture of the body and the blood of Christ. Return to Me. Rend the heart. I'm going to relent of your punishment. And what I'm going to give you is My grace in the death of Jesus. Poured out over you as a drink offering feeding you as a grain offering. Verse 15, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. 
Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room, let the bride come out of her bridal chamber. This is more important than a wedding. Yes, I just said that. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep before the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? He says, come on, gather, bring the church together, call them all to the same place and repent. And I'll even tell you what to say. Interesting to me that verse 16 in the midst of all this picture of the day of the Lord, the tribulation, verse 16 mentions the bridegroom coming out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Now, in the context of what Joel is saying, he's saying nothing matters more than this assembly. But understand that during that day of the Lord, while that's going on on earth, in heaven, the marriage feast of the Lamb is happening and the bridegroom is going to come out of his room and the bride out of her chamber and we will enjoy with Jesus the marriage feast of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verses 11 and 12. Beautiful. And then we will return with Jesus. After that time. Wait, Rick, are you saying you think that's why that's there in Joel? That Joel meant it that way? I don't think Joel knew what he was writing, but I think the Spirit meant it that way. As with all the prophets, remember Peter said, they searched to understand and know what time and season Christ was telling them. The Spirit of Christ was telling them as to the culmination of all these things. They wanted to know. They didn't quite understand. They didn't have the context for it. But the Spirit knew exactly what He was saying. And yes, I believe the reference to the bridegroom and the bride there is a reference to Jesus and the church. Hidden, mysterious perhaps back then, but one that when applied against the backdrop of the book of Revelation becomes, I think, very clear. Verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for His land and will have pity on His people. The Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain and new wine and oil and you will be satisfied in full with them and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. Once again, we see a time stamp on the day of the Lord. Because all previous destruction of Israel and Judah and Jerusalem, all previous horrors enacted against the Jewish people have not stopped the Jewish people being a reproach among the nations. You know, one of the number one movements right now on college campuses in America is anti-Israeli. Pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel and anti-Semitism against Jewish students on college campuses in our country is on the rise. Because the Jewish people are still a reproach. They are still a byword among so many, though they should be loved because they are the people of God, yet the nations are opposed to them because the devil is. And so he says, I will never again make you approach among the nations. This is a future promise. I will remove the northern army. Literally, it doesn't say army there. It's literally, I will remove the northerner far from you. I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, its vanguard into the eastern sea, its rear guard into the western sea, its stench will arise, its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. What is this northerner? The Hebrew word is Siphoni, and, and Siphoni 
is used in the prophets often to speak of an attack from the north. It's the easiest way to attack the land of Israel is coming down from the north. The Assyrians came from the north. The Babylonians came from the north. Rome poured in from the north. And what's interesting is usually locusts don't swarm from the north. Although they did in 1915. That was a rare occurrence where locusts came in from the north. We don't know where they came from in Joel's day. But it could be here, the northerner that he's referring to, he's he's now referring back to that demonic locust army, which would follow the prophetic allusion so far to locusts. By the way, one other thing about the locust swarm in 1915, it actually came, like I said, from the north, but they finally, it was... It was finished, not because of the people trying to bat down the locusts with flags and put them in tin boxes. What finished the locust swarm, a huge wind came up and blew them out to the Mediterranean and they drowned. But, here he says, its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up for it has done great things. Great being like awesome, incredible things. When those locusts in 1915 rolled up on shore in Israel, when their carcasses rolled up, it reeked. It was described as a a foul odor. So that may very well be what he's referring to. This northerner army could also refer to the armies of Antichrist, having come against Israel from the north out of Babylon. Either way, both armies will be removed. And now Joel begins to describe what comes next. Let's just put our toes into it for a second. Verse 21, Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God. For He has given you the early rain for your vindication. That would be the fall rains. And He has poured out for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. That is the fall rain and the spring rain. The threshing floors will be full of grain. And the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Now listen to this great verse. Then I will make up for you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army, which I sent among you. It is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. One of the most precious promises of God. He says here, I'm going to make up for lost time. See, that's what grace does. And sometimes what people don't get, especially if someone has walked away from the Lord and has stayed walking away from the Lord for decades. I think, how can I come back to Him now? If people only knew, God makes up for lost time. For those who have never known the Lord, but have come to the Lord later in life, they can tell you. Or those who did walk away as a child or as a teenager, but come back later as an adult, can tell you, it is marvelous, He makes up for lost time. He restores the years that the locust has eaten. How do we know this? Ask the thief on the cross. How much time did he have to worship the Lord and follow Jesus and listen to His teachings and enjoy fellowship with Him before He died? And yet, that day He was with Jesus in paradise. Ask anyone who has ever been restored how God makes up for lost time. Return to the Lord, rend the heart, He will relent, and He says, fourthly, I will restore. I will restore. 
And restoration in the hands of God is not reduce, reuse, recycle. Not that I have a problem with recycling as such, but it's just reusing the old thing. That is not restoration. Restoration is all new. Everything brand new. Everything perfect. I'm going to make up for the years. That's His promise to Israel. Zechariah chapter 10, verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have had compassion on them. And they will be, listen, they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. And I find it interesting that the thousand year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom on earth, is longer than Israel's previous reign. God is going to make up for it completely. Though they had 900 and some odd years of messy, messed up reign. Israel, the northern kingdom, was terrible the whole time. Judah, the southern kingdom, had some good, some bad. And if you take all of that time that Israel had in the land before, it is less than the length of the millennial kingdom. Is God not good for His word? I'm going to restore. I'm going to make it all up. And what was lost here, guess what? It's going to be marvelous in the coming kingdom. Verse 26, You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God. There is no other and my people will never be put to shame. And in those two verses, actually with the following verses, a five-point sermon. I could give to you right now. We could be here two more hours. Let me just give you the points. You will have plenty. There will be praise. The Lord will take pride in His people who will never again know shame. And there will be presence. God says, I will be in the midst of My people. The presence of the Lord. And there's one more promise in the next verse. He is going to, number five, pour out His Spirit. It will come about after this, I will pour out My Spirit on all mankind. We're going to stop right there. We're going to talk about that next week when, Lord willing, we finish the prophecy of Joel. And Father, we thank You for Your Word to us. And Lord, I just want to pray for a moment for those who are dealing with trials and tribulations. For those who are in the midst of intense struggles. For those who honestly, Father, could say, I feel like the demon horde is running roughshod over my life right now. Lord, You use all things to call us to You. And I pray we would hear You call. That we would not let the calamities of life, either small or big, confuse us or bring fear or drive us from You. But Father, that they would bring us to the stronghold. You are the stronghold, Lord Jesus. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are Messiah. You are Savior. May we run to You in our day of trouble and in our day of gladness and find our source of joy and peace in Your presence. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.